Welcome to today's episode of A Facilitator's Journey. Today I'm joined by Simon Kettlebrough, a very old friend and someone who runs um, a leadership business out of South Africa. We talk about how the personality of the leader is reflected in the personality of the business. How our businesses as facilitators and trainers is a direct reflection of ourselves. So sit back, grab a cup of tea and come and join Simon and I as we have a really interesting conversation. Hey Simon. Kirsty. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. Good to see you again. And you too. So for our listeners, where in the world are you? Uh, I'm in Cape Town, South Africa, where I've lived for 15 years. I always say that I'm British originally, um, and I am, but I've been here for, for the last 15 years. And just one question I always ask all my guests is, how do we know one another? Well, why do you have to ask them that? You know that. I don't too. know. I like to place, I don't know. I feel like when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm like, how do they know each other? Yeah, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, and working it out. And um, so I've known you for exactly half my life. You're a very lucky man. 1998, um, Guinness Brewing, London, where we were both working. And um, yeah, friends ever since. Indeed. Actually, it's 1999, March 7th is when I started. Okay. I wanted to go for the 25 years, so but that's fine 24 24 it's our anniversary next year okay yeah which is my 50th as well next year anyway digress for our listeners um simon what do you do in the world at the moment and for the last 13 years i've worked in a business called aphoria in cape town based in cape town in south africa um aphoria aphoria is actually a greek word it means flourishing forever and we work with human flourishing in organizations. So um, we work with the inner worlds of pr- primarily leaders in governments and in corporates. Wow. I like that. I'd, other people would say we work in leadership. I like the way you say you work with inner worlds. Um, the inner world. The inner world of a leader? I think so, because I think that's the thing that drives the bus. Uh-huh. Um you know, a lot of focus gets put on processes and and results in organisations, and the most overlooked bit, and this is the bit that that people like Otto Sharma talk about all the time, the leadership blind spot, which is the the inner world, the place that the leader comes from, the pair of glasses that they wear to look at the world and to make decisions through. Um, so yeah, we we place a lot of a lot of stock in the inner world as the decision-making and sort of operating system of a leader. Stories, our, our stories that we tell in the podcast are from the perspective of, of ourselves and running our own training facilitation business. And we were talking earlier about the point you're making that as the leader of our own businesses, does our personality 
shine through the businesses that we create, whether you're a solopreneur, you have a small team, you're leading, I don't know, a national, a regional, um, a global training business. So you sort of hypothesize to me, you know, the personality of the leader bleeds into everything that happens in the business which just made me roll my eyes thinking about myself. And I, and I just wondering if we could talk about that and what that, what that means to you. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a, a weird um, realization, which first came about as most of us as practitioners, we tend to look at client organizations before we even, we look at our own sometimes, which I think is quite amusing. Um, and we're looking at client organizations. And so we, we found that we were going into um organizations and we work with with personality and we work with maturity as two concepts so a leader's personality and a leader's level of development um uh, vertical development it's sometimes called maturity um and how those two things conspire for uh, to construct i suppose what we'd call the meaning making architecture of a human like how do we see the world how do we make sense of it what stories do we tell all of those are coming through the lenses of our, our personality and our maturity and so we part of our business measures that stuff we, we've got an assessment tool that measures through the enneagram and also through maturity framework and what we were finding is that um the the personality of excos for example would often be such a huge shaper of an organization's strategy. So for example, we'd, we'd go into a, um, there was a consumer goods organization we worked with, fast moving consumer goods. We went in there, um, a lot of the Exco had the same personality type. And funny enough, it's your personality type, Kirsty, as well. Number seven. Enneagram seven, so upbeat, um, future orientated, loves new projects, loves um, new plans, planning for the future, doesn't really like to look backwards, not so big on the detail, but starts a lot of stuff, doesn't finish always, that kind of person. And there were like so many of these on, on the Exco. And we went in and we, we um, what we found is that, um, for example, they'd got 132 new pack variants of their various products that they wanted to launch in a single year because all of these kind of ideas people were sitting in the Exco going, oh, we can do this, we can do that, we can do that. And that became their strategy. And, and for me, look at that and go, that's personality derived. So that is okay. a, a predisposition for newness that has bled into the strategy of this organization and then ends up on the shelves and in the warehouses. And it just fascinated me. Um, and we've seen that time and time again in client organizations. And I suppose then one has to go, well, if it's out there, then it's probably in here. Mm -hmm. um, and to what extent are our smaller businesses actually driven by the inner world of, of those that found them and those that run them? And what do you think? What's your conclusion to that? I mean, I think in some ways even more so than a corporate, um, you know, because everything's so much more concentrated in a small business. And if it's, a, you know, obviously it's a business of one and it's just the founder leader, then, then it's everything. Um, but I think even as a business grows, and we've seen this a little bit in the last few years, um, you know, that, that top sort of leadership tranche is still having a massive impact on the rhythm and the cadence and the uh, the way that the business operates 
yeah absolutely um and if people are sitting here listening to this going how do i you know i i run the business myself or there's two of us what's an inquiry they can start to notice like how am i how am i choosing to run my business yeah so it's a big question i mean i think that you know we're always big advocates of self-awareness in this game um i think that the more we as business owners can hold a mirror up to ourselves or i mean better still actually i mean everyone in our business for example gets therapy they, we pay for the therapy they go twice a month um and and we really really believe in that and i think that the more we can get support to see our stuff uh, and connect with with how we see the world how we operate um the stuff that 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 really is affecting how we show up that we might not know or we might not want to know the more we can engage with that stuff the more we can kind of start to understand really how our inner world is shaping how we run our businesses and what the impacts are of that um, on ourselves on our families on our clients on our on our employees on our colleagues and some people might be sitting there now going well i have coaching or i have a supervisor coach why would i need therapy can you just help um just talk about some of the differences between therapy and say coaching hmm I mean, I, I can do that in a broad brush way. People have their own nuances on on you know all of those disciplines. But I think that um, you know, very broadly speaking, coaching tends to not look backwards into a past and how a past might be, or, or an upbringing, or a childhood um, patterns learned in early life is coming into life now. Coaches tend to do that. I think a bit less. I would say. Um, therapists obviously love that space um, and operate there quite fully. So I think that's that's one way. Um, coaching can be can be less less deep, I suppose, in in that way. You know, we're not delving into deep psychological dynamics. Sometimes with coaching, it's more around outcomes and results, and I guess can feel a bit more tactical sometimes. That makes sense. I started therapy in the last three weeks and I don't think I've, yeah. And I don't think I've spent so much time looking backwards and talking about stuff that I thought wasn't really um, still there or relevant, but uh, yeah, I think it's interesting, insightful. Thank you. And I'm really fascinated that that is something that you pay for, for your team, like has, expected that that is part of being part of the euphoria team like you you have counseling counseling you have therapy twice a month that is that is the norm that that warms me i think that's awesome because i think it is so important that we i have a very uncouth phrase of sort your shit out um because if you don't sort your shit out as you know when you're in the room with the client it shows up it leaks. If you get triggered, you cannot not communicate, you know, stuff, stuff comes through. There's a, a guy called Bill O'Brien who was CEO of, I think, Hanover Insurance or some um, company, which I 
perhaps I forget, but um, he said that the, the success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. And so if we are interveners in organizations, then our own interior condition is absolutely paramount. It is, dry, it is shaping the whole thing. My, my brain just blows up at that thought. Mm. It is good to do our inner work and it is good to start thinking about how we are how we are and therefore what personality that brings into our, our businesses. Um, we, we also spoke about, you know, the head versus the heart um, in leadership. That's something you've noticed before, you know, leaders who lead with the head or leaders who lead with the heart. I was wondering, um, let's talk about both of those and what, what that can look like from just your experience that you've had. It's quite a binary thing, I suppose, that it sets up when we talk about head and heart, because, of course, everybody has access to both. And you have gut as well, if you want. Head, heart, gut, spirit, even, if you want to bring in a fourth brain. We, we often talk about four brains, you know, the head brain, the heart brain, the body brain, the somatic kind of um, uh, body stuff, and then the spirit brain, transcendent. Um, and I think we have access to all of them. I think that the business has uh, over-egged perhaps the rational, logical. Um, it's seen as the professional way to be. Um, it's really interesting, actually, like one of, one of our, and I'm not deliberately plugging our assessment, but one of our questions on the maturity assessment, um, they're sentence completion. It's a sentence completion test, so it's 15 sentence stems. And one of them is emotions at work, dot, dot, dot. And we ask people to complete that sentence. And it's, it's in part a test of, of maturity because at earlier stages of development we think that we think that emotions should be banished from the workplace i mean first of all we think we can as humans you know we leave them at the door and then we're here to do a job so um you know i don't bring my emotions to work and nobody should bring their emotions to work because they're really dangerous oh, i i epically failed at that yeah I th I, absolutely i think it's it's perfectly valid to epically fail because humans are emotional creatures we are balls of emotion um walking around the world feeling all the time and so so the the sort of more mature position is absolutely we need feelings at work we must have feelings at work because they are rich sources of data for us and so i think that that business generally has has either been scared of or in some way wanted to just um, distance itself from emotionality at work and so so you know you might call a head a head based leader somebody who um, prides him or herself on the rational and logical um, approach to doing stuff um, might be quite numbers driven you know data driven um, perhaps less relational and I think that you know somebody who leads more with their heart doesn't mean to say that they don't have access to that stuff of the logical and the rational. It just means that we fold in emotional data as well. How about gut and spirit? I quite like the fact that there's four brains. That works for me. What what does this what does someone with maybe more of a gut brain? What do they look like, sound like? Yeah. Um I think gut is very undervalued in organizations. And again, I think it's because it's it's maybe poo-pooed a little bit as a source of intelligence. You know, you don't go into your boss in a corporate and say, OK, um, 
new product, got a new product. Um, it's probably a 50 million pound a year product. Boss says, how do you know that? Person says, oh, I just got a feeling. It's just in my gut, you know, let's go, let's do it. The boss is going to go, not a prayer, go and give me the spreadsheet and bring it back. So I think that gut can also be sidelined. Um, you know, I meet, I meet a tremendous amount of leaders who have got great guts and don't use them. And also what goes through my head as you say that is, do people know how to access their gut instinct? Do they, we've not been taught to your point, it's not encouraged. So who, who has ever taught us that? And mm. would people even know the cues of their gut instinct talking to them? Yeah. So that's the question that goes through my head. Um, and then a next question would be, if someone's like, oh, how do I work out what my cues are for my gut instinct? How, how do I discover those? What would you say, what would you say to them? Um, I suppose my first invitation would be to ease back on the throttle as far as the head brain's concerned, because we really do overuse it. Um, it gets in the way. And I think for those other sources of, of data and intelligence to come through like from the heart, from the gut, from the spirit, there's got to be the space for that. And, you know, part of the big challenge, I think, working in organizations today is, is that people don't have space. Um, there's so much demanded of people the the pace of organizational life for me, it just ratchets up year after year after year after year um, to what is, I think, now an untenable speed um, and level of expectation of people and what they can deliver. And so there's no space for those, those other sources of insight to come in. And um, we've got to create it because our bodies are telling us stuff all the time. Our hearts are telling us stuff all the time. Um, and if we don't listen, then, then it, we can really get into trouble. Yeah. And just to finish off the fourth brain, um, spirit, what, what does that mean? Or what does that look like? It, it means, it means very many things to, to different people. Um, you know, you use the word spirit in, in a corporation. Sometimes you can be laughed out of the building. Um, I can sometimes re re frame that as meaning or purpose you know people's meaning or purpose um i think it's the, your ultimate belief system spirituality what do you really believe and what's really interesting though is when you and i started in the corporate world head was the only one of those four that was probably talked about and definitely given any value heart was there but was as you said we were discouraged from bringing our emotions in. And yeah, I think we were both in sales and we were told, you know, good relationships were superbly important, but you know, but you still got to be able to be factual and logical and, and demonstrate the key benefits. And over the last 20 years though, plus that's shifted. We, we now acknowledge that heart is just as important. So, and we're now talking more about guts. It does give me, it does give me a sense that in in a very short while of the future, both gut and spirit will be totally accepted as well as different ways to to create 
possibilities and ideas and and make meaning of situations and and and, and what I think is always really exciting for those of us who run our own businesses is I always have this visual that we're like on the uh, the front of a crest of a wave in that we can lead those new ways of thinking and being in service of our clients as well, but also in service of our own businesses. So if we were to hold that to be true, you could have spirit, head, spirit, head, heart and gut. And we could choose because we are smaller businesses or solopreneurs or individuals. I wonder what that would then look like for someone like myself or even how you might be doing it at Euphoria. Like, how do you tap into those four ways of thinking, being, doing, sensing? And I just wondered if we could like um, maybe go back through four of them again and just give some people if they were interested, like, well, what could that mean for me running my business? What could that what could I do to help myself explore those four a little more? Yeah. And I think that there's two there's at least two questions in there um, that you've you've just asked. I want to just go back and, and say that I think that the increasing acknowledgement of the importance of multiple sources of intelligence, not just rational intelligence, is driven by a level of complexity in the world that now is beyond the capacity of the human brain. Life and business have become so incredibly wickedly complex that we can't possibly fathom it through thinking it through alone anymore. We have to find other ways of synthesizing information um, and actually our cognitive brain is our slowest brain by far the gut the heart the spirit all much quicker at, at accessing um, meaningful information about our context and environment so so it, it the complexity of the world is demanding it i think i would say that in terms of euphoria um i mean what's interesting just maybe to go back a little bit to the personality piece um, which is where we started the conversation and we, we probably didn't explore that enough. I think that, um, you know, when you look at the sort of personality of of a business leader, of, of a, a solopreneur or, or whatever you, you want to call them, a smaller business, then the way that that person sees the world and what's important to them and their kind of primary motivation it just shows up absolutely everywhere when you really go and look. So if you've got somebody who, for example, is um, their whole motivation of being is around getting stuff right and being perfect, then you will find that there is an orientation to detail and perhaps less around the big picture and an orientation to going line by line rather than grand narrative and a, a perhaps a, a trap of getting caught up in excessive amounts of checking and detail, which has a direct impact on the rhythm and the cadence of the business. So sometimes you've got to act fast. If you're a perfectionist, then you're going to find it more difficult to say that's good enough for it to go. Actually, that person is still going to have to sit and check every line of that press release or of that client report or whatever it is before it goes out. That holds stuff up. 
So there's some beauty to perfectionism and it's really useful in some ways, but in other ways, it can really hamper um, how a business operates sometimes. Um, and you can look at various personality types and, and kind of say the same thing. So if, if you are incredibly motivated by and focused on caring for others and being lovely and being liked um, and popular, then you're going to make certain business decisions, both with your people, your colleagues and with your clients that are going to have a particular flavor. To them. Again, it's a beautiful thing to care for people, but like any personality characteristic, if it gets driven and overused, then it gets us into trouble. So then we're paying people way too much and beyond market rates because we want them to like us. We're bending over for clients in, in ways that aren't useful to the business. Um, we're selling stuff for less than we should be charging. And all sorts of these other knock-on effects happen. You know, people have got lots of holiday. And so we're working half time and you know there's, there's so many different impacts of when a personality take takes hold of a business um and i think the key is just to go and look and see so get some baseline awareness like you know what kind of a person am i what are my motivations motivations and drivers and how do they show up on on the business and that's why both of us would say doing that with someone who can hold the mirror up for you is really beneficial as well because i'm guessing people who are listening to this you've set up your businesses you're intelligent human beings you can probably talk yourself out of doing some of this because to to hold the mirror up and look at ourselves it can be hard it can be challenging and i know talking just from my own place oh i'm, I'm clever enough to like go oh no it's all good or i'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge some of the poor behaviors that I have or my my excessive desire to be liked or have friends and what that then does but I won't go the next layer down and go so what and what's the impact that's having whereas if I'm doing that with someone else who I'm working with um that changes that changes the quality of the conversation and the dynamic because um yeah you can't avoid the questions when someone's looking you in the eye. Absolutely. And then your stuff's on the table and then you can make a decision. Um, okay. So now I've got a sense of how my inner world could be showing up as a business leader and a business owner. Now I can see it. I've got a choice. What do I want to do about it? You can still do nothing. But you've now got the choice. I'm cool with it. I'm, I'm fine with how it's impacting. And yes, there are some negative outcomes, but okay, I can live with that because you know, the business is doing well or whatever other rationale you can find. But at least when you can see it, you can do something about it. You've got that choice. And I would also say if there's anyone listening to this and they're like going, or no, if you're listening and you've been having like a felt sense or I call it the sort of, I'm doing this with my hands, you know, there's, there's something I just can't put my finger on, sort of feelings, mm. sensations, emotions. Often that's a clue that something's going to, pop up in uh pop up and out through the unconscious and that's where i'm like definitely go get a conversation with someone like go and do some of that inner work because there is something rising to the surface but again sometimes we just we're too clever for our own goods at maybe minimizing something that we think oh that's not important but actually 
it has energy and it wants to be seen and heard and to be noticed. Yeah, yeah, so, ab yeah. absolutely. Um, there was a, a Scottish psychotherapist called Ronnie Lang, who um, lived and worked in the 60s. Some people will have heard of him, I'm sure, R.D. Lang. Um, he was quite mad. He, he actually pioneered work with people um, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, and his model of treatment was that the doctors would live with the patient in under one roof. Um, it was groundbreaking and progressive and quite mad. And he said a lot of really good stuff. And one of the things he said was the range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little we can change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. So in other words, what we don't see, we don't know. And what we don't know messes with us all the time. And so if we are running a business, best we know what's messing with us because it's messing with other people and our strategy and our bottom line and our client relationships all the time. It's the stuff we fail to notice. So I guess if there's one message from this conversation, it's the more self-awareness we have, the more we can figure out what we're failing to notice. Um, I know, I mean, I can tell a little bit of my story it's, as a, um, oh, it's so boring in some ways, like the cliched kind of um, success orientated um, person, um, Enneagram 3, for those who are listening who know the Enneagram. It's, it's about efficiency, effectiveness, looking good, winning, you know, dread, dreadful. You so were that as well in 99, my love. Just well, friend, friendship to friend too. Thank you for that. It's all right. Um, but it really, and, and it's got some usefulness, right? Of so, it does. so we all I've, have. I've got a, I've, you know, I, I will prioritize us getting paid for example, I will hound clients to pay their invoices. I will keep an eye on the cash. I, I, I'm orientated towards converting proposals, that all that kind of stuff. And that's useful. That's really useful in the business. But I can really, my massive blind spot is there's a couple of them. The, the one is um, overwork. And so when the business leader overworks, then people in the business also think that it's the way to be and so everyone ends up uh, overworked yeah so that culture of overwork can lead to burnout and then you've got a business with no people in it because they're all flat on their back have you so, burnt out? yeah i've burnt out but i've burned out this year um at, at a couple of points yeah um and it creeps up and i don't recognize it or notice it until it's there um and that's a blind spot because my personality has some kind of view, which is I can just keep going. It tells me you just push through. You know, you get pusher throughers. You're a pusher thruer. I'm a pusher thruer. Um, so then I'm I'm not noticing when I'm when I'm tired and stressed, and I'm taking it out on others, and I'm not realizing it. Um, and so that has a really bad impact on on the culture in the business, and that bleeds through all the way to clients and yep. success and so the thing that i'm trying to avoid which is failure is the thing that comes back and threatens when those things aren't taken care of and noticed and brought yeah. into check hmm. wow back to that best we know the stuff we fail to notice 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. And um, I've had that feedback. Like it's too transactional, Simon. You're just being too too focused on the work and not enough focused on um, necessarily on the the humans. Um, yeah. And as you say that, what also goes through my head is we, if if we start to do this, decide to think in a different way, behave in a different way, be a different way in that we want to understand how our personality is impacting our businesses. Part of us has to be open to that feedback and to hearing all sides of what works, what doesn't work, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. And again for many of us that can feel quite squeamish to begin with and and uncomfortable and yet if we don't um, allow ourselves to sit in those conversations with people we'll never know and 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 I'm also then sorry I'm on a moment is when you work for yourself though and it's just you or there's a couple of you you might be thinking well there's only two of us like what's what's the point obviously i do i not know already do i not get feedback from the other person and and i probably i don't know i i question if that unless you explicitly set it up as a way of being and a way of working giving each other feedback probably isn't the norm or through which lens you'd like to receive the feedback yeah how do you get feedback in your business I have to ask for it and I rarely ask for it because I cringe and it's not, I'm worried about the bads. I'm not a complete finisher. That's one thing. So I don't remember to do it until it's too late, say on a project, a client project. And then if my team are listening to this, I don't know how to ask my team sometimes because I was like, well, they will just be sycophantic towards me because I don't really want that. And I think probably I'd do best if I started just setting it up as a process in the year. Because I'm quite good for all my, I want to do, I do do a lot of big ideas and I do start lots of new things. But I, I've learned that a framework is it something I can play within and that's really beneficial. So if I had the framework of feedback and that we were going to do that twice a year, I'd probably be okay with it. Yeah. I just think in the past that the business is too small who am i to put something like that in place and i've got freelancers and i've got um i don't have a an immediate team who work for school of facilitation but now i'm really questioning that because actually as in of course you can set up some processes and that's okay it doesn't matter how big or small you are you don't have to wait to your certain size yeah yeah, there you go. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of insights that that you've had there, um, and 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 the same happens to me as well. But I mean, there's a whole set of beliefs there that are translating into behaviours around how you run the business, and the extent to which there are processes in place or not, and the beliefs around well, how big do you have to be to have processes in place, um, the narratives behind that, you know, all of that stuff. It's it's our inner dialogue that is shaping that that's exactly the point of of what we're talking about here and the same is true for all of us so go dig in the behaviors you know go and forage around a bit and see well what are the narratives that are that are driving me and therefore driving the way that i run this business i think if you're a sole 
practitioner, a sole practitioner, then you probably do need to go and find some external um, input there. Like a, a, a psychotherapeutic coach, I would say, is um, probably the sort of the kind of beast that you might want to track down because there you've got somebody who will be quite directive. You know, therapists often can be sort of quite kind of held back and, um, you know, the the joke is always, you know, how does that make you feel? It seems to be the only line that a therapist can ever sort of muster. Um, you want somebody much more directional um, and coachy, but also somebody who's prepared to walk that path from early life through and trace back where these patterns and beliefs come. So a psychotherapeutic coach is really great for, for a sole practitioner who doesn't have other people around them. Mm. And and how if someone's now going oh I'm really curious how do I find one of those people what's your recommendation how do you find someone like that um, word of mouth is is for me the the best way um, you know referral put it out there make it be known that that's somebody that you're looking for otherwise you know there are there are coaching schools coaching federations um, that people can use. Um, the psychotherapeutic piece is key, I think, because, you know, these these patterns and narratives are are derived from early life. And so you've got to have somebody who's who's able to go back and, and forage around in there a little bit. Yeah, I love that. Um, and what if you are in a bigger organization? So there's there's more of you. What, what are your thoughts there? Then, yeah, then I think that you can ask your colleagues. Um, and, and kind of build it into the rhythm of the business, um, the quarterly cycle, whatever it might be. Um, and I think to just invite people to sort of share their experiences of working with you, um, that you're most interested in development opportunities, um, you know, happy to hear the good stuff, but really keen in particular on hearing the stuff that is a bit more challenging about working with me, for example. And then I think it can be set up in a way where you, you say, and I won't be defending, I won't be um, responding, I won't be asking for clarification, I'm just going to say thank you at the end. And so you then receive the feedback, you don't respond to it or, or try and disprove it. Um, and so you've got a, 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 a safe container to, to yeah. get the feedback. Cool. Hmm. Thank you. Now, okay. we could go on very easily and go down another avenue of conversation, which would not be hard. Um, but I have some quick fire questions I'd like to ask you that okay. I ask everybody. So what advice would you give to someone starting out in their training or facilitation business? Starting out like right off the bat. Year one, okay. Year two. Okay. Um, build relationships with others in the same field. It is, I mean, I speak for, for coaching um, and I think for facilitation as well. It's one of the hardest areas to break into and to get established. And I really think that people, and sometimes people leave corporate and come out and say, right, I'm gonna be a coach now. I'm gonna be a facilitator. And um, I, I see it quite often where the, the, the toughness of that is underestimated. And so I would say hunt in packs um, you know, alliances, allegiances, networks, meet people, um, connect 
with people in the same zone, hunt for business together because it's a lonely place when you first start. Yeah, yeah that's why School of Facilitating exists. So come hang out with the pods. Uh, who do you follow in social media land that you think others should too? There's one guy called Alexander Biner, B-E-I-N-E-R, who's a kind of a, um, yeah, he's like a big sort of macro trend um, guy that, that um considers the world and where it's going and you know like massive ideas he also folds in um ideas around how um psychedelics can support people to have a more meaningful and um useful life what book would you recommend to people there is a book that i read quite recently um called capitalist life syndrome um it's about meaning meaning in life and meaning in the world um capitalism life syndrome might be the subtitle actually but it's by a guy called joel voss v-o-s um it's a fantastic look at i mean it sounds very depressing but um but the impact of of neoliberalism and capitalism on on the human psyche um, and how it's actually taking us down and down and down and down and down into a state of malaise and anxiety and depression. So, yeah, if you want a cheerful read, that would be it. Amazing. I, I don't know. I'm curious. I'll probably go and pick it up just to have a read. Yeah, it's a um, great book. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your thoughts. It's been really interesting, I have to say. I've I'm going to go back and re-listen for sure. Um, how how can people find you in the world if they want to connect? Yeah. Um, so the business name is Aphoria, A-E-P-H-O-R-I-A dot C-O dot Z-A. And my email is just simon at Aphoria dot C-O dot Z-A. There you go. Well, watch your space. Simon, thank you. And see you again soon. Yeah, thanks for the invite.